it, friends. You're listening to Fast Forward Radio on the Blog Talk Radio Network. Fast Forward Radio is an audio production of The Speculist, and you can find us online at speculist.com. That's S-P-E-C-U-L-I-S-T.com. Or if you're one of these fancy new touch typists we've been hearing about and you want to try out your skills, you can actually type in blog.speculist.com. That'll take you straight to the good stuff. On Fast Forward Radio and on the blog, we talk about the future, and we give a vision of the future that you're not likely to find anywhere else, and we're going to spend some time talking about what exactly that vision is here this evening. My name is Phil Bowermaster, and with me, as always, is my co-futurist, co-blogger, and co-host, Stephen Gordon. How are you, Stephen? I'm doing great, Phil. You doing okay? Uh, Doing very well. Just got back from a big... uh, uh, well, not big, just a nice little relaxing weekend out of town with my wife, and uh, we had no agenda of any kind and just took it easy, and uh, it, was, it was everything that something like that should be. So well, that sounds like, you're talking sounds to like a great time. Yeah, um, my wife and I, uh, it's, it's, it's kind of rare when we can, we can get away. We, our, our children are still small and are still very young, and, and so it's, we, we, you know, I think the last time we did it was almost a year ago. <laughs> I had a weekend. Wow. But then from you, we always get all these, you know, Cub Scout camp. And yeah, yeah. Camping uh, trip. And yeah, my my weekends that. consist of some some deal with the kids usually. So exactly. that's kind of yeah. that's kind of the way that and goes. And then uh, Michael Darling is with us also. Hello, Michael. Good evening. How are you? I'm doing great. I didn't uh, didn't have the weekend away. Didn't have any camping trips. It was just a jam-packed weekend of uh, early summer stuff. So how's, how's the baseball team doing? Oh, uh, today was a heartbreaker. We were uh, leading for three innings and then trailing for three innings, and unfortunately we got those in the reverse order, so we ended up losing exactly. a close game. You want to be trailing for those final innings is the, is the key to the that's, that's the hard part, certainly. And and as I had mentioned to Stephen earlier, I um, I had the modern-day experience at the game of losing my cell phone. So I'm now in the in the you know the first 24 hours of do when do I call it off and say that phone is never coming back and I just have to go out and replace it or you know it'll turn up like you know anything else I lose I would just wait and say oh it'll, I'll find it. That's a, that's a quite a predicament and it really depends on where you lost it right if you lost it at the ballpark versus. Are you sure you had it there, or maybe you never left the house, right? That sort of thing. All of the above, and of, and I know I had it there because as the uh, as all my players showed up and the game was getting ready to begin, I set it to silence all, so it'd be very quiet. It wouldn't ring during the game, which of course makes it now impossible to find. Yeah, now you're going to have some trouble finding it. Well, good luck with yep. that. Uh, well, I, I don't suppose you've tried calling it just to see if uh, whoever picked it I up have. will answer. I have, and I was hoping somebody would answer it. Or, frankly, if they scroll through the contacts, my there's there's one in there that says home. They would call here. But yeah. if you know, if assuming if they're they honest, yeah, they found it and the battery was charged and yada yada yada. Yeah, well, good luck. The problem is, it's silent. They won't even know it's ringing. They'll, they'll have to see. <laughs> That's exactly right. Even though it's ringing. Well, we hope it turns up. Uh, keep us keep us posted next week. We want to check in on your phone, see how that. Uh, if uh, yeah, if the third voice next week is some stranger, ask him where my phone is. <laughs> yeah, he calls in. On, he calls into the show using your phone. Yeah, that'd be awesome. That could be dangerous. <laughs> so, so Stephen, we wanted to uh, spend a little bit of time on a topic we were going to talk about last week, but uh, let's let's touch on it now. You've been playing a very interesting game. It sounds like with your kids. And tell us a little bit about that. Well, uh, Phil, I, I need to ask. Uh, you guys ever play Dungeons and Dragons and that kind of thing uh, as as kids? I mean, we're the right age that y'all y'all probably did. That was back in you know what the uh, mid the, the mid to late seventies. The great joke answer would be something like, "No, I dated girls in high school." <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, but the truth is, yes, I did play Dungeons and Dragons. Okay, me too. So, me too, uh, to some extent. <laughs> yeah, to some extent. Uh, Michael, how about you? I did not, um, but it seems like everybody I knew did. So I, I have no idea why, uh, you know, I didn't fall into that circle somehow. Well, I, I, you know, I toyed with it a little bit. I, it was never, you know, something I took all that seriously. It's sort of like 
you know, I think I, I've got this, you know, uh, you know, I, it's, to some extent, I, you know, I've, I've grown up, I've, I've taken on responsibilities, I've got, you know, I've got a job, got, you know, got a family, but there's still the kid in me that wants to, you know, do things like learn how to solve the Ruby's Cube and, and, uh, and learn how to do role playing games better than I did as a kid and that kind of thing. And, um, and so anyway, I just started, you know, I said, well, you know, I could, you know, part with seventy, eighty dollars, and 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 get the you know uh, latest versions of Dungeons and Dragons or this or that or whatever. Uh, but you know, there's got to be stuff out there on the internet that would be pretty cool. And let's let's check this out. Well, I, I came across this website called AnimalBall.com, and uh, they've got a couple of different. I'm sorry, that's Animal Ball. Yeah, like one word, Animal Ball. All right. I don't know what the story is about that uh, that name, but that's the name of the website. And uh, they have a uh, um, a game uh, called Instant Game, simply enough. And uh, the the point of it is that you you never know when you sit down what kind of game you're going to be playing, and you roll out the scenario, and then you you take a few minutes to create a background story using what you roll out as the, the prompters. Okay. And so you basically kind of create a fictional universe, you know, in, inside of 10 or 15 minutes that's su- sufficient enough to play around with for, you know, uh, for, you know, an hour, an hour and a half of gaming. And, uh, man, the kids and I have had a great time with this. This has been a lot of fun. Well, so you're actually creating the, the game, n- n- not just the specifics, like in Dungeons and Dragons, where the dungeon master is going to create the genre, everything is a mystery. You're creating all the parameters of the game. Is that exactly. Right? Let me give you an example, real quick example. I mean, I've, we've done this. We've, we've played about five different games now, but here's just here's one of my favorites. I rolled, and I mean, there's like you you roll uh, two ten-sided dice that you know, so it's uh, you get one to you know, so it's one to a hundred. Okay, it's the percentage dice that you use to get a number between one and a hundred. And right. uh, and so that's you know a hundred different possible scenarios and this and so I I rolled out and it, first thing arc ship you know like Noah's ark ship okay okay next was horror underneath that was vampire big business <laughs> tragic villain guide plus ruins and um, and then steel plus auditorium. Now I, I, I worked as much of that into a background story as I could. And what I came up with was a, you know, dying planet Earth sends out a spaceship with uh, all the DNA records of every plant and animal that they could find, um, and then uh, billions of people loaded up in a virtual reality matrix, uh, while about 600 live crewmen pilot this ship to the next star system. Okay. Cool. Okay, so that's the that's the scenario I came up with and then who who comes along for a ride but Dracula, okay? Because obviously <laughs> his feedings you know, the humans are leaving the dying planet, and, you know, that's his prey. What is he going to do? He's got to catch a ride. And but of course he's only got 600 live flesh and blood, blood victims and you know, it's like a 50-year ride to the next, you know, star. And uh, and so it looks like uh, humans are in danger of checking out if they don't they don't go after you know Dracula. And so the whole adventure is about tracking down Dracula. You have to follow the clues within the Ark ship, and also you know you have to enter the virtual reality and and learn uh, learn from uh, the Harker family that's had a background with Dracula as to how to how to fight him and this and that, and then. Finally, face him after going through familiars, you know, the people that are helping him, and and then finally getting to uh, Dracula himself, and then you know, facing him and and conquering him, and that's the game. And so, wow, that I mean, and well, uh, literally we sat down and had no idea where we we're going to go with that until uh, you know we started rolling the dice, and we got these, you know, and all of that's assembled from the tables. So that was fun. We had. How far we had are you a, into that game? Have you? Completed it? Have you driven the stake through the heart yet? Oh yeah, that that particular game we we uh, got we got that one done in about two and a half hours. And, oh okay. And so sure beats TV. <laughs> you know? Sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah. yeah we've we've had a great time. The kids uh, the kids love it. And uh, you know you might you know the next time you sit down you might end up being a cowboy. Oh, oh one of the funniest things we had a 
uh, an adventure in ancient Asia, and some, uh, somehow Elvis happened to be there. <laughs> Elvis Presley, you know, we have to save Elvis Presley from the uh, the uh, the Japanese warlord, you know. Oh, it was great. And, and that was because randomly that was one of the elements. That, that was one of their elements. I mean, and you 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 um, it says here in the uh, in the in the guide here, uh, Elvis Presley. If you happen to roll him up, they um, let's see here, real quick. Uh, uh, that's right, the king of rock and roll, greased pompadour, pompadour rhinestone studded jumpsuit, the trademark sneer. This is the whole package, baby. I don't know how he got into your game, and I don't care. The point is that he's here now, and you just can't ignore that. <laughs> so we, we had a good time with that. That was, I mean, but anyway, the whole point. And so I, uh, I contacted the instant game guys. I kind of told them how how great of a time we were having, and um, they they said, "Well, have you heard our podcast? You need to come on our podcast and talk about you know how you, the fun you've had with your kids with our game." I felt like Jerry Seinfeld in that episode, you know, where the Bizarro. Uh, anyway. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, bizarre world. Uh, well, you should go on their podcast and see if they want to come on and talk about their game on ours. That yeah, I, I, I kind of uh, broached the subject with them. I, I, maybe they will. That'd be fun. But because that's a huge topic, and you know that relates to our topic last week. I mean, yeah, is, creating uh, universes. That's exactly. Yeah, right. you're creating an artificial world every time you uh, create one of these games, and then you get to go interact in that world. And as their database grows, you know, future generations of this game will only have more elements. Uh, more kinds of characters, more potential kinds of conflict. It, it, it just gets bigger and bigger as they uh, as they keep working on it. Yeah, I'd love to talk to those guys. So yeah. Set up a you know tit for tat thing with them. See if uh, you know they get a few minutes of you, and we'll have them on for a few minutes or something. I think we can work that out. Maybe we'll get them on in a show or two. That'd yeah, be great. Be, it would be. That'd be fun. Okay. Well, let's let's move on. We've got uh, a lot to talk about. We're going to get into the Speculist Manifesto this evening. But before we do that, we're going to spend. A few moments uh, delving into, um, I was about to say the world of the unexplained, but that's not true, Uh, delving into the world of the perfectly explained with a little feature we like to call. And we've got uh, a, a topic for a future uh, astounding science facts in the chat room. I see that M. Darling is asking, "What exactly is a tat?" <laughs> so I'm not going to touch that, but uh, we'll, we'll get to that. Uh, we'll get to that one of these weeks. Now I've got I've got two quick topics for astounding science facts this week, and one of them um, there's a little bit of a story behind. Uh, actually, I'll just ask uh, Michael or Stephen, either one. Are either of you familiar with finger monkeys? Finger monkeys. It sounds like you know something. No, I have no idea. Okay. Yeah, yeah keep in mind this is a PG show. Appropriate that chat room comment, but um, <laughs> I'm just saying. Finger monkeys um, were I had never heard of them, and uh, last week my wife and I were at a dinner party, and a friend of ours was talking about them, and she's this well-educated, well-traveled, uh, very articulate, very intelligent woman, uh, a journalist, and. You know, she's talking about these monkeys that are, like, so small they can wrap around your finger. And she's going, you know, you've heard of these, right? Finger monkeys. And I've seen pictures. Of, yeah, I, I, no, I, you're talking literal small. Yeah, I've, I've seen a little I'm pictures. I'm talking literal finger monkeys, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I've, I have seen a picture of a monkey that small. But, yeah. Okay, Stephen is clued in on the finger monkeys. Yeah. I'm, I'm here to tell you that I've no one pictures. at that dinner party, okay, was clued in on the finger monkeys. And, um... Uh, with with the exception of her boyfriend, who was pretty much you know bound to take her side on the thing, <laughs> we all thought maybe she was a little bit crazy. In fact, at one point I said to her, uh, "So where do you find these?" And she said, "Well, you know, they're all over the place." In fact, <laughs> oh no, she made herself sound like she's seeing monkeys regularly. Do you see them in the room now? <laughs> Oh, gosh. <laughs> but she denied that she did. And so I went home and Googled it, and, and sure enough, it turns out the pygmy marmoset uh, is, in fact, a, a real creature. Uh, it ranges in length from 15, excuse me, from 14 to 16 centimeters. So you can, uh, those who need the inch conversion on that, that's a very small little critter there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it would be the smallest the, primate, no doubt. 
Yeah, it is, it is absolutely the smallest primate. And there are pictures online. We'll have to we'll have to provide one of these on the site that they literally do wrap around your finger. So they're they're our our tiniest cousins, I guess, out there in the uh, in, in the primate world. The pygmy marmoset, also known as the finger monkey. So I wanted to share that astounding science fact. I was not up on it, and I felt that I owed my friend that if she's listening. Um, you're right. We were wrong. There are finger monkeys. So uh, that's a great thing about it. Uh, in the chat room, the, the, the skepticism here is running high. Well, we got I, I got to get a uh, with a jackalope. Yeah, I'm going to definitely have to get a picture, and I'm going to put it in the put it in the chat. That way, the we don't even have to wait on the uh, uh, wait on the show notes. I'd like to. Yeah, I have I have to tell you, uh, Michael, that the jackalope definitely came up last week. That uh, perhaps we were onto some kind of jackalope type creature. Uh, my other real quick astounding science fact: in light of the release of Iron Man this week, and we'll be talking about the Iron Man movie uh, towards the end of the program tonight. Um, we can link to this story, which was in Scientific American, Real Life Iron Man, a robotic suit that magnifies human strength. And it says, an exco- ex- excuse me, exoskeleton robotic suit may help workers lift heavy loads and patients move damaged and prosthetic limbs. And there's a picture of it there. And the guy looks kind of like uh, Iron Man. The, the company is Cyberdyne. It's a Japanese company. And they're hoping to uh, change the fact that this has all been fiction up to this point with this what they call sleek white exo, ex, I can't say that, exoskeleton now in the works that it says can augment the body's own strength or do the work of ailing or missing limbs. They're confident enough in its new technology to have started construction on a new lab expected to mass produce up, mass produce up to 500 robotic power suits. So they look kind of like the Star Wars uh, stormtrooper outfits, but this is a real technology um, taking us in the direction of the real-life Iron Man. So uh, we'll have a we'll have a link to that. Maybe we can put a picture of that up as well, Stephen. I, I think that uh, the the technology that would that's the farthest and the and the most difficult uh, that Iron that you see with the Iron Man movie is obviously personal flight. You um, you know at this point they're they're already getting uh, suits down to where you can run run without tiring and lift heavy objects and and uh, but. The personal flight thing, providing enough portable energy to actually get you up off the ground and keep and, and keep you up off the ground for anything longer than thirty seconds—that's the trick. Do they yeah, address I, that I, in the movie? I'm sorry. In the Iron Man movie, do they address that? Um, you just have to suspend disbelief. Enjoy the movie. Yeah, okay. uh, they don't. They don't. No, they do not. <clears throat> that will be very advanced technology when we're finally able to. Uh, uh, to make that happen, I think we're going to need something along the lines of utility fog suits before. Uh, before we, and even then, I'm not sure how they'll make us fly. So that's going to be a, that, that's going to be a, a next generation or you know third or fourth generation kind of Cyberdyne project for them. But they do have the exoskeleton. Ex, I don't know why I can't say exoskeleton tonight, but they they do have that going. So it's a start. Hey, I got to uh, point. Uh, throw this out to the listeners. Uh, when you go see Iron Man, if you haven't already. Make sure to sit through the credits. You want to sit through the credits. Trust me on that. That's all okay. I really want to say about that. Well, we're going to pick up. We're going to talk Iron Man here towards the end of the show. So we'll okay, yeah, to... let's we'll get further into that later. Yeah, yeah, and you can give your uh, you can give your remo- re- review, you know, with with or without spoilers. It's up to you. But uh, let me just say that this is Fast Forward Radio on the Blog Talk Radio Network. And we're going to be talking about the Speculist Manifesto this evening. If you have some thoughts on that or questions about finger monkeys or Iron Man, or if you think you can pronounce exoskeleton better than I can, give us a call at 347-215-8972. So let's get into our topic of the evening, which we have kind of boldly stated on our website as the the shocking truth about the world. And... I, I, I come to this topic tonight, Stephen, having spent a little bit of time thinking about it last week and a lot of time uh, thinking about it, uh, excuse me, two weeks ago, and a lot of time thinking about it this this, this past week, uh, you know, how we're doing in terms of addressing kind of this major uh, different approach to the world that we take on this program. Because we, 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 
we present a lot of material that supports our point of view, but I don't think we've spent enough our time articulating exactly what that point of view is and how different maybe that point of view is from what people are hearing elsewhere. Yeah, it's and and because if it bleeds, it leads in in mainstream media, and uh, it you know it's it's all bad news all the time. You know, you, if if uh, good, you know. We've, and we have mentioned this uh, before, but it's been a while since we've mentioned it. But, it, you know, you could have a 100, uh, you know, kids taking part in the regional science fair, and there's nothing in the newspaper about it. But you have one kid five blocks down the street holding up a, uh, a liquor store, you know, and uh, that's going to be, you know, that's going to be on the front page. Um, exactly right. It's And and, and so we, we don't hear about the 100 kids that are doing well and, and you know, being decent kids, we and and so and you just multiply that by everything, and so we don't we don't get the good news, and uh, and there is good news out there if if that's what, you know if you're interested in knowing the good things are happening, you can you can find it, and that's part of what we're doing. That yeah, that that information is available, and it doesn't necessarily filter its way through for the exact reason you said. If, if it bleeds, it leads, and there and there's a reason that I mentioned the mainstream media and politicians because. Because I think both of them have a vested interest in the world being something other than perfect, right? Um, you, you know, and and I'm, no one's going to claim that it's perfect anyway. We we don't claim that here. But if things are good, um, you don't have a lot of quote unquote news because news is if the one kid robs the the liquor store, not the, not the one hundred who uh, <laughs> do something astounding at the at the science fair. Um, politicians. Um, they need to fix the world. And uh, one of the things I've noticed in this in this presidential campaign is, uh, particularly on the one side, but really across the board with with all three of them, they they seem to have this notion that what they're really about is, hey, I'm going to address your grievances for you. You know, uh, I'm running for president of the United States, and I will be the grievance addresser in chief. You know, you, you've got a lot of problems. And I'm I'm coming here to fix your problems for you because the world is messed up, and I'm I'm the person who's going to fix it. And that makes sense. That's that's understandable that 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 kind of model would exist. But the problem with that is once our uh, once our media is is fixated on um, on on fixing the world, or or excuse me, they, they don't even fix the world on reporting how messed up the world is. And our political infrastructure is fixated on uh, fixing the world, uh, starting with the assumption that that it's bad and needs to be uh, uh, seriously addressed. Y- you miss out on a point of view that says, well, actually, by and large, for the most part, um, things have gotten a lot better. Things have gotten better in our own lifetimes, and things have gotten better throughout recorded history for humanity. And in fact, things have gotten better for humanity if you go back before recorded history and 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 track the whole history and prehistory of of humankind you see this uh this amazing level of technological and social improvement not you know only and this this come this comes this whole viewpoint of ours Phil is something that comes across to some people as incredibly lacking in sophistication yeah, and and you know we 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 must be completely naive to believe that the you know the world is getting better all the time, and uh, and you know don't don't you see all the terrible things that are happening in the world? Well, yeah, we we see the we see the bad things that are happening, but you know it's we we we've advanced as a species two steps forward, one step back ever since the beginning, and. Uh, and that is going to continue to go that way. I don't think that we're we're going to see it. You know, we're we're never going to solve all the problems, but we can continue to make it a little better all the time. And so yeah, or, or a lot better. That that, yeah, that I yeah. think is is the key because what's what's happened is not only have uh, and I think that's a great way of I think that's a great way of describing it. Actually, we go two steps forward and one back, then two forward and one back. And what do we focus on? Well, we focus on the one back. Yeah. And it makes it makes sense that we would because. Because that's where we are always. We're always in that one back, and then we go ahead, and then we're back again. So, so we we have. And, we and the Luddites are always saying, "Well, you know, what has technology brought us? But all this problem, this problem, and this problem." Well, I'll tell you what: these problems that we have now are a heck of a lot better than the problems that you know people faced 150 years ago. Whatever the problems we face now, they're they're trivial by comparison. 
Well, I, you know, I, I wouldn't want to live in a world without anesthetics. Okay? You know, or antibiotics. I, or antibiotics, yeah. Or blood transfusion. I wouldn't want to have to undergo. Imagine undergoing whatever passed for dentistry in the world before anesthesia existed. Okay? Just, I mean, and that's one very minor example of, uh, of, of the, 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 kinds of, the kinds of things that, uh, that we're talking about. But if, but if, you, make, if you make that leap, um, and it is a leap, if you start looking at the, at the two steps forward, you see this incredible pattern of not only uh, improvement, but, but an, an, an accelerating cha- uh, pace of development, that, that the, the things that are happening are not only uh, positive developments, but, but the changes are occurring more and more rapidly. And when we talk about things like Moore's Law, and we talk about the, uh, the law of accelerating returns, as, as Ray Kurzweil lays it out, you know, we're, we're talking about formulations of those kinds of patterns, but, but the patterns exist, uh, you know, whether we, whether we call them by those names or not. Yeah. Well, and and, um, and and so you know we we make this this constant uh, and and so it's a rough acceleration. You know, I mean, it's not. But I suppose if you put it on a graph, it doesn't look all that rough, does it? Um, it it looks like a pretty constant. Uh, you know, uh, from the, if you, and and Kurzweil gave, put it on a graph for us, uh, both logarithmic and and otherwise. Yeah, Kurt Kurzweil has graphed the daylights out of this. <laughs> I love his graph. He's shown it all, all different ways, and uh, John Smart actually does a good job of that too, of of, of showing um, the how the different kinds of changes work together. And yeah, you do you get this very smooth pattern of of not only rapid development but accelerating development of things getting better uh, faster. And yeah. and I think that is a pattern that. Maybe not everybody in the world is quite ready for. So, um, calling us naive, I, I think, is a, is, a, is, a, is a very understandable defense mechanism. When when people hear you say that you think the world's getting better, uh, when people hear you say that you think that uh, we stand on the brink, and I think this is an important point: if we play our cards right, we stand on the brink. If certain things happen, if things fall into place, but following the same pattern that things have been following. We're looking at a future that is, you know, almost unbelievably different from the present that we currently live in. Different in ways that would be hard for us even to articulate or imagine. But that future being growing out of, emerging out of this pattern of improvement says that that future ought to be a really great place. You know, a a future better than, than most of us expect, a future better than really most of us can even imagine. Yeah, um, and you know, I, I my thoughts on on this are, are are many. I one thing that a lot of people look at and they see nothing but gloom and doom coming in the future is energy. They you know hmm. you know you see gasoline now, and uh, I I tell you it it uh, it, it costs a hundred dollars for me to fill up my wife's van. We really got to get wow. something besides a van. Um, you know, as, big as, as big as our family is, I, we just—I mean—we're going to have to all shove in a smaller car. I'm sorry, um, uh, but it, you know, when you got uh, gas that's three fifty a gallon and, and really approaching four, if you get anything besides you know the lowest octane, and you know, and it, it with potentially no limit in sight, you know, people see that and they go, "Well, you know, things are about to get really, really bad." Well. Yes and no. I see this as this is. Uh, I see what uh, what lies ahead as a as a period of transition, and I don't see it as all gloom and doom. That's just one. And, of the, and I think it's important to point out that that we certainly don't deny that things can get bad. Yeah. That you know it's it, there, there's there's nothing saying necessarily that things have to become wonderful. Um, Actually, even to acknowledge the possibility that things might become wonderful throws you way out of the mainstream. If, yeah. if, if you've even got that on your uh, on, on your roadmap as a possibility, uh, that that uh, is is something that's not entertained by uh, by by most folks. But but it's true. You you look at a you look at a problem like that and you say, well, I don't know how we can solve that. Um, and if we don't know how we can solve it, then it's it's I, I think in some sense natural to assume that maybe there's no good solution in sight. 
and that and that the transition that we have to go through before we reach a solution to that is by definition going to be a very difficult and a very painful one. However, one of the one of the things that I think plays heavily into this is what you've described as Spock's chessboard. And maybe you want to say a word or two about what that is. I don't think I can explain that concept as well as you. Well, um, why don't you, you know, I want to throw it right back at you, Phil. I want you to explain, if you would, uh, for our audience, first, the, the Chaturanga chessboard oh. analogy. Okay. And then I'll, I'll take it from there. Okay, I'll do that. Before I do that, what I'm going to do is I'm going to say that this is Fast Forward Radio on the Blog Talk Radio Network, and we're opening up the phone lines now. If you have a question for us or would like to talk about the Speculus Manifesto, you can call us at 347-215-8972. Yeah, so the, uh, the, the, the ex- exponential growth uh, story that we like to tell comes from India, and it has to do with the... Uh, the very wise man who invented a game called Chaturunga, which is played on a board identical to what we call the chessboard. In fact, Chaturunga is the prototype of chess. It was the original chess game. So the legend is, it's a wonderful story, probably apocryphal, but it's a great story, that... It ought to be true. Yeah, it ought to be true. The Raja or Sultan or whatever the uh, uh, official title of the, the local prince the local royalty to where uh, the guy who invented this game was, wanted to reward him for coming up with such a wonderful game. So he brought him before the prince and said, he was brought before the prince, the prince said, uh, I'll give you anything you want uh, as a reward for inventing this great game. And the guy says, okay, well, here's what I want. I want one grain of rice. I just want you to give me one grain of rice and put it on the first square of that chessboard. And then uh, what I'd like you to do is double that and give me two grains of rice on the second square of the chessboard, and then double that again, four on the next one, double it again, eight on the next one, and just keep doing that until you've uh, expired the chessboard. And the king is like, well, are you sure that's all you want, a little, you know, a few grains of rice? Maybe uh, you'd like some gold or something. He says, no, just give me that, and that'll be fine. So the king says, well, all right, fine, go ahead, uh, give the man his rice. And he dispatches, you know, some, some uh, servants to go take care of starting to count out this guy's rice for him, they come back a couple hours later and announce that the royal granaries have been completely emptied, and they're only just a little more than halfway through the chessboard. So what this kind of wise guy has demonstrated here, the inventor of, of Chaturunga, is the amazing power of exponential growth. And what we see when we see accelerating change, when we see something like Moore's Law in effect, where the processing power of computer systems doubles. Um, when we see these kinds of uh, these kinds of laws in effect, we're seeing an exponential growth in capability, and that looks uh, like not much happening for a while. And at first, you think, well, I don't see how this ever amounts to anything, as the king thought when he was just doubling 16 grains and then 32 grains. And then something astounding happens. And you're into, well, that's more rice than even possibly uh, exists. And in fact, I believe that by the time you get to the end of the chessboard, if you were to uh, try to do this, you end up with more grains of rice than there are, like, particles in the universe or something like that. I mean, that's, that, that's, how, the, that's how the doubling 64 doubling is a whole lot of rice. That is a whole lot of rice by the time you get to the end of that. So we look at, we look at these kinds of changes to be uh, unexpected jumps from one doubling to the next, where suddenly you're in a whole new world because capabilities that existed before have suddenly doubled. And then I think that kind of takes us to the Spock's chessboard idea. Yeah. Well, I I was thinking about that. I mean, um, uh, Phil, you gave that as a speech one time, uh, uh, Toastmasters speech, and uh, you won, didn't you? Um, Actually, no, that it was a different speech I had that won. Oh, okay, okay. Well, at any rate, it was a great speech, I, and I got to thinking about it. And I said, you know, here we are uh, experiencing uh, the chessboard analogy for real, and, you know, we're doubling our computer power every 18 to 24 months, thereabout. And so that's pretty cool, but what does that really mean? Well, the more I got to thinking about it, the more I got, I, I thought, well, the chessboard analogy is not perfect. Because when we double our computer powering, uh, what we're dealing with, we're, we're really 
getting to the root of intellectual uh, of our intellectual capacity. Uh, when we uh, when we're doubling something that's basically a tool that allows us to do more brain work, in a sense, then it's not just you know that we're getting you know uh, better uh, video games or something. Although they're getting they're getting better all the time, aren't they? But that is just you know that's just the smallest part of it. We're 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 able to do everything better. Uh, that's uh, that's brain brain powered. So think about it. We and, and so I, I said this is Spock's chessboard. What we're seeing, you know, the 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 base chessboard on the Spock on Spock's chessboard is like looks like a regular chessboard, but above that you have other little you know other little boards spawning off of it. Well, I mean, uh, so you have uh, the computation chessboard. Explain Spock, a character on Star Trek, played a game called 3D chess. Exactly. Yes. Thank you. With with Kirk and. And, uh, back in the original series. Exactly. Back when, when even Michael Darling was pretty young back in those days. <laughs> and so it's you know the the computation chessboard spawns other chessboards like uh, you know uh, DNA uh, you know uh, you know uh, sequencing or, um, or you could have quantum computers on another chessboard or you know and on and on and these other chessboards are also advancing exponentially. And uh, you know you might have a nanotech chessboard, and and on and on, and and so these chessboards uh, expand on their own, and we get better and better stuff that is also uh, growing exponentially. And sometimes they feed back into the original loop. Sometimes an idea from one of these spawned chessboards might actually help continue the doubling down on the computation chessboard, or maybe they, sh- maybe uh, something that you learn uh, while you're sequencing DNA teaches you, you know, something more about nanotech. And so the the boards are self-reinforcing, and uh, and they're all spawned from the original chessboard, and it's all exponential growth in, in a, you know, in a bunch of different directions. And so... So when you look at a problem like energy, you, you, what you have to keep in mind is that there isn't necessarily... There doesn't uh, have to be an answer today, necessarily. Right, and nor does there even have to be uh, a, a for sure direction on where the answer comes from because we have so many different variables in play. Uh, you put a, a great post earlier this week on The Specialist about the algae economy and how we could, uh, we could replace virtually all the uh, fossil fuel usage in the U.S. with, uh, with uh, uh, biofuels made from, made from algae. One possibility. There, there are objections to that. There are all kinds of problems that would have to be overcome with that. But a few years ago, nobody was even talking about biofuels to that level of seriousness, and it's certainly not to that scale. And now we are talking about it to that scale. Ray Kurzweil yeah. talks about a, a Moore's law being in effect for solar energy. That the and check me if I'm wrong on this, but basically that the capability the of photovoltaics, that the amount of energy they can produce is doubling every, I don't know what, what the period of time is, but something along the lines of Moore's Law, say every year, every two years, I don't know what it is. But that, too, is growing on an exponential curve, and he says within the next 15, 20 years, solar will be so much better than it is now that it will actually provide all of our energy needs, and that's well, another possibility. You know, and I, I guess we can have a solar singularity when uh, it, uh, and that point would be when, Phil, when it's the cheapest form of electricity. Yeah, when, I think when yeah, when solar's cheaper than anything else. When when solar's so cheap that nobody wants to drill anymore. <laughs> That's right. It's not, there's no point in even plugging into the grid. Batteries. You, you need a battery singularity too, but people are working on that at the same time. Right. And at the same time, they're working on new designs for fission reactors. There, you know, fusion is still in play. There's still talk of uh, different kinds of biofuels from uh, switchgrass or from from other crops making it out of uh, Waste paper. I mean, there there are a lot of different ideas in play for how that problem can be addressed, and they don't necessarily all have to work out. Most of them won't, and most of them won't. But if we're looking at at dozens of different ideas and four of them pan out, you, you know, go. then the problem is probably solved. So I think there's good reason to be. And we learn from our failures too. Absolutely. Even in even in the face of what appears to be intractable problems just because there are so many variables in play. But not everyone views that as a, as a realistic uh, point of view, and I think not everybody is quite ready for the 
speculist message. And I believe you had an anecdote that you wanted to share about that, actually. <laughs> well, um, well, it's you know, it's almost uh, you know, we we want to be careful. We're not we're not out to start our own religion, are we, Phil? Uh, we we have a certain amount of, of zeal in uh, in going after this and everything. But you know, it it, it reminds me of uh, of back when I, uh, I I came to Denver, you know, in in part to go to the uh, what was the future? It wasn't the future salon. What was that that uh, I went that time? Um, well, it was is a Rocky Mountain Bloggers Convention, right? Anyway, we went to that, and uh, I, uh, in in the process of uh, of, of going uh, to uh, in, in going to that, I got to meet Phil, and the conversation I had uh, with uh, with Phil, uh, and, uh, and and basically, I was trying to co- uh, convince him that we ought to do a podcast, and I was calling it an internet radio show back then because the word podcast hadn't even been invented, but uh, I. Uh, I went uh, went and kind of recruited him, and the conversation with his wife didn't go as well as I thought. And you know, I didn't record the conversation, of course, but uh, it went something like this. Ma'am, would it make you feel any better if you knew that what we're asking Mass here to do is a holy thing? You see, we're on a mission from God. Don't you blaspheme in here! Don't you blaspheme in here! Now this is my man, this is my restaurant. You two are gonna just walk right out that door. Without your dry white toast, without your full fried chickens, and without Mad Guitar Murphy. <laughs> well, Phil, you you must not be there. I I can't. Uh, are you muted? Anyway, uh, but it, it didn't go as <laughs> that uh, conversation didn't go uh, like that at all. Of course, uh, Soraya was. Uh, uh, <laughs> was a good sport, of course, and uh, we we uh, got the uh, podcast up and going just as soon as possible. So, anyway, we uh, we had a good time with uh, uh, that visit and uh, got the uh, got the show going, and uh, that, and uh, it's that's that's the history of it. So, anyway, I guess I have lost Phil somehow. Michael, are you there? I can hear you. Apparently, some of the folks in the chat room can't hear us either. Huh. And. Uh, Still looks like he's still up in the chat, so I don't know what to say about that. But, well, um, th- that's a shame. We're uh, having a good conversation here. I'd, I'd, um, I'd hate to have to hang up and reestablish like we did the, two or three weeks ago. Um, well, let's give him a, a moment to come back in while we're waiting, because I think waiting here is the, probably the easiest thing and the perhaps most conservative move. Um, back up to a couple things that we were talking, we were chatting about in the chat room. Uh, in terms of if it bleeds, it leads. I made the observation that um, that fear is a is a probably what is uh, a natural evolutionary uh, part of our heredity. And, and as evidence, I gave the simple: if you couldn't get afraid, you wouldn't survive. Right? The big bad monsters would eat you, and you'd die. Um, and so, therefore, you didn't survive. So, if you got, if you have fear, that's a very strong motivator, and that fear goes along with a fair amount of pessimism and focus on the danger. And you got 99 good pieces of news, you got one bad piece of news. Let's hear the bad piece of news because fear is the, the motivator there. Uh, Phil, are you there? Well, nope, he, he's on he the is. chat saying he's coming back. Well. Um... All right. He, he looks like he tried to dial in, and now I've got him twice. So I'm, I'm going to hang up both those lines and see if he can dial back in. All right. And you're, you're uh, Michael. You're at the seven two zero, right? Yeah, that's me. Okay. All right. I want to make sure I don't hang up on you, and I'm end up without anybody to talk to. Okay. Um, well, anyway, um, I'm I'm sorry, uh, Michael. This has completely thrown me off. Where, where were you? I was that uh, fear is the reason we focus on the negative, and that if, if in fact, uh, we are heading for what I think is a natural progression of things getting better, and even if it's two steps forward, one step back, and we focus on the one step back, uh, it's, there's going to have to be a, uh, a mimetic transfer here where we stop focusing on the things that are scary and just focus on the things that are less scary and more whatever. Um, because we're hardwired to be thinking about what's scary. And that fear gets us thinking, yeah, maybe things aren't all that better. Uh, Kirk's file also gives an example that 
he uses, I think, more and more now to illustrate for people what he's talking about is the we progress towards a singularity, and that is life expectancy. Right. 10,000 years ago, average adult male lived to be a little, little over 20, 25, closing in on 30. 2,000 years ago, life expectancy was around 30. 150 years ago, it was in the mid-30s, approaching 40 in the modern world. And then in the beginning of the 20th century, uh, life expectancy just started getting better and better and better. And now if you add into that an exponential factor, um, it, uh, it, it gets to the point where you know, it didn't, didn't look like much was going on for the for 40 years or 50 years or a couple generations, but all of a sudden it kicked in and it was big and it was powerful and now, hey, what's uh, what's to be afraid of that? Phil, are you on the line? Yes, I am here. Okay, great, great. Got Phil back. Think about that, some, some kind of blog talk radio glitch apparently, huh? Apparently so. Well, at least we didn't have to kill the show completely. It was just, just kind of uh, not a bad as deal. As long as you're not lost, that's the key. <laughs> You know, if, if any of the rest of us lost, ever lost, it, you know, it, we can always find our way back. But when you're lost, it's like, that's that's that's. <laughs> it's kind of, yeah, well, it's kind of bad when the host is kicked off because then you, yeah, it's uh, it creates a big, big bad problem. But yeah, glad you glad you made it back, Phil. Michael, my thought on that is that you know we're kind of wired for to deal with crises. That's sort of, I mean, you think about it. You know, that's what we've always done. And uh, and that's a that's a real good strategy, but it may not always reflect reality. You know, if uh, uh, it doesn't allow us to, you know, <laughs> take, appreciate the fact that yes, progress is being made. Well, the, the, well I the, think that I agree. With the, oh, go ahead, Michael. I'm sorry. I was going to just follow on to Stephen. That yes, I think we are hardwired to deal with crises, um, and you know, panic being being sort of an extreme and immediate form of fear. Uh, would 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 illustrate that nicely, but the the challenge becomes as a species, both because life expectancy is extending out, um, and because populations getting to be uh, a rather, you know, I, I won't say it's unmanageable, but it's getting to be big enough that, you know, you got to start asking yourself, are we going to overshoot some limiting factor and crash the crash the population we could sustain? At which point I say, yeah, this is where you got to be able to say, and maybe it's climate change, but you got to be able to say intellectually we can observe conditions, we can with reasonable certainty say, look, I'm heading for the big curve and past the curve, it's a cliff. If I don't turn the car and stay on the road, I'm going over the cliff. And we can joke about it and say, yeah, but, you know, I don't want to go over the cliff. And then it's still, if you don't turn, you're over the cliff. And as people, as, as a species, we kind of get the same thing going. So if we can't sort of, you know, stop looking at the shadows on the wall and look outside the cave, if we can't stop focusing on what scares us and look at the other stuff, I think we're not going to turn and we have a good chance of hitting the cliff. There you go. So the only thing we have to fear would be fear itself. Maybe that's the, I, that's the great filter that, that prevents uh, – we, we blogged about that earlier this week, and Stephen has uh, blogged about that earlier. You know, what, what is it that accounts for the Fermi paradox? Why is it that uh, no one seems to have reached that next stage where uh, you, you you create the galactic empire, you, you you colonize and spread out to the whole galaxy? Maybe it's because you get so focused on what you're afraid of uh, that you that you don't focus on on what you are capable of, and it stops you dead in your tracks. There you go. But I don't see that happening. Okay, I, I, I and this this brings us back to the to the you know Phil or Stephen relating that uh, on his visit to Denver he got caught up in a moment where you were uh, you were challenged about the mission from God and you weren't there to to you know pick up on that. Yeah, well, <laughs> we kind of ruined that. We kind of ruined the joke because uh, unfortunately uh, Phil was not there to to react to that. But well, obviously I had been. I had been carted away, you see. I, you know, you, you right. had to have your four fried chickens and your Coke and your dry white toast, but uh, you're not getting out of here with me. That's, yeah, well, well the the, fry, the fried chickens, I was just trying to, you know, uh, get away from the mammals, okay? I, I needed a lot of fried chicken. But. There you go. <laughs> Michael was going to have the dry white toast. Yeah, that's right. But, uh, we, needed, we needed a Phil Guitar Bowermaster. That is <laughs> Join my, the band. Uh, that, that that is my favorite uh instance of of those guys saying that they're on a mission from God. I love it every time that line is delivered in the movie the movie The Blues Brothers. I'm sure that's been covered uh by now, but uh, that's my favorite time because we're I love a Aretha Franklin's response. 
Oh, did you did, give it again? All right. We're on a mission from God. <laughs> there it is. That's, that's the, you know, that's the crazy thing those guys say. But that's kind of the feeling that you, that you, that you have once you get a hold of this idea that um, that we need to turn that corner that, uh, that that Michael's talking about. And I think it really is this this mimetic change. And there are people who are not ready for that idea. You tell them we're on a mission from God. Uh, and they say, "Don't you blaspheme in here?" You, know, you, you tell them that, you know, that the, 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 the world's going to get better. And I think that is the response. That is the mainstream media response. Coming back to my original dichotomy here, that's the standard political response. You know, don't you don't you blaspheme? Okay, don't you don't, don't say don't, any of that. don't suggest it might be getting better. You know, it's uh, haven't you haven't you heard uh, that uh, things are getting worse all the time? Don't you watch the news, man? Haven't you read a paper? I mean, what are you, Pollyanna? Uh, that that is the response, and and I think uh, Aretha Franklin sums it up sums it up perfectly there. But that's what that's what we uh, that's what we do. That's what we're here for. That is the speculist manifesto. I think there's a there there is a human imperative for us to improve our situation. That's what human beings do, and we've we've improved our situation throughout the eons by first solving all these problems and and not going extinct and 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 protecting ourselves from the bad but occasionally we've improved our situation by looking ahead and saying hey here are good things that can happen and now that we've reached this point in our history in our development when there is so much good ahead um, and, and so much capability so many amazing possibilities we've actually reached the point where we have to turn and we have to say as, as Michael I think you just articulated very well we can't be about just stopping bad things from happening. We still have to stop bad things from happening, and we still have to prevent the bad outcomes from happening, but that can't be our main focus anymore, not if we're to realize what we're really capable of becoming. And that is the Speculist Manifesto. Pretty awesome. I'll sign on to that right now. And 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 so this manifesto is not come does not come to you from uh, from a cabin out in Minnesota. Um <laughs> it's, 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 uh, we we're not communists. So we're not. We're, we're not crazy. <laughs> so although that's a bad thing to say because crazy people always uh, insist that they're not. But <laughs> that's right. Well, that's Speaking the uh, that's the George people, Michael, I wonder if about the, I'm sorry, about go ahead, Michael. All progress coming from unreasonable people. That's right. Yeah, the, who is it that said that? That's a great. Uh, that was that was Shaw. It was the. You know, if you're a reasonable person, you accept the status quo and you you adapt to it. And if you're unreasonable, you adapt. Your you 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 you. The status quo has to adapt to you. Okay, so we're getting a request in the chat room, and and I'd have to concur with Harvey here that uh, state the manifesto again. Just you know, straight ahead, one one brief thing. Okay, I'll, I'll say it without without saying the human imperative. But I think the human imperative is – no, I'll say the whole thing again. Okay, there's, there's a human imperative, and the human imperative is that human beings improve the, the condition of humanity. We, we work to make our own world better. That's what we've done from day one. That's what human beings do. And initially and throughout all of our history, the emphasis on that has been about solving problems and been about uh, preventing bad things from happening. But we now live in a time that – through the exponential change that we've been talking about, the possibilities that lie ahead of us, the positive possibilities that lie ahead of us are so many and uh, so profound that we can no longer afford, uh, if, if we are to realize our destiny, if we are to continue the human imperative in the direction that it's been taking us all this time, we can no longer afford to be about just preventing bad things from happening. We have to turn ourselves and say, no, we're about realizing these good things. We're about... We're about focusing on the positive future that's ahead of us and making that happen. And there, there, I think that sums up the speculist uh, in, in a paragraph, but it's, that's a nice summation. I'll, I'll try to get it down to a sentence if I can. Were there any other comments or questions from the chat room? It seems like there's been quite a bit of... Uh, uh, yeah, here's one from Anne. Um, she says she's, not, she's disagreeing with Phil, or, and I think by extension Stephen and I, saying things are so much better because there's still so much pain and disease and suffering. Well, we're not denying that. Point. We're not denying that there's pain and disease and suffering. Um, but ima- imagine 150 years ago, there was pain, disease, and suffering, but not too many ways to alleviate that. And so, yeah, there's uh, 
there are, the problems continue, but I, the the extent to which we can deal with these problems, we're getting more and more all the time. We are, we're getting better and better tools for dealing with pain, disease, and suffering. So, um, if, if if you go back to yeah to, to pick up on that, Stephen, I think that's a great question, Ann. So thank you for that. The the uh, say you go back two hundred years in our in our in our past, most of us wouldn't even be here to talk about this because we're already past what the average lifespan was. I know I am. Right. And um, so, so yes, my life, you know, has got all kinds of problems to it, but my life wouldn't even still be ongoing uh, in, in a past era of human existence because I would have died of something by now. I had my gallbladder out a couple years ago. That probably would have killed me if, uh, if nothing else. Actually, my mom had to take drugs while she was carrying me to keep her miscarrying. So, you know, I mean, and, and that was uh, 45 year ago technology. So, so a lot of us wouldn't even be here to to realize how how painful and difficult our lives were, <laughs> are if if the world weren't so much better now than it was then. It doesn't mean that there isn't pain, um, and there will be pain in the future. In the future, they will have uh, a world that seems extraordinary to us and seems like a utopia oh, to us, but it won't seem that way to them. It it, it will still seem like a, a difficult world to live in, one that's fraught with challenges and problems. Yeah, absolutely. We're not we're not utopians. Um, we we don't expect that uh, that the future ahead is going to be perfect, and uh, certainly we don't see the present as perfect. But things are getting better all the time, and uh, we look, you know, and and so it it, it makes us optimistic about. Uh, the future, and that's why we're always saying, "Live to see it." That's 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 sort of a motto of ours as well. Well, I see that Anne is on board with us now, to, at least to the extent that the world is less bad. Yeah. So, absolutely, Anne, and and let's live to see a world that's even less bad than 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 this world. I mean, if if you want to look at it that way, that that is what we're talking about. Um, but but I think it's not just less bad. I think it's actually, I think it's actually quite a bit better, and 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 will become even better. Well, we're. We're pushing here towards the end of our time, and we never even got to our uh, review of Iron Man. Should we uh, should we push that off to next week? Yeah, we might want to do that, but uh, I'm going to just say simply, uh, great movie. Not just a great uh, comic book movie, but a great movie. I enjoyed it. I, um, I'm i a big fan of Spider-Man 2, I think, uh, because I just think it was a great movie. Uh, this Iron Man uh, rivals Spider-Man 2 in my mind as to how good it was. And... Uh, to me, that's high praise, and so it's, uh, even if you're not particularly a uh, an Iron Man fan, I think you'll enjoy it. And so, go I, see it. I, go I've see it, and you'll enjoy Iron it too. Man comics. Were, were you a big fan of the comics? Did you need that knowledge going in, or did it work okay? As a I, I, not really. I, I you know Iron Man wasn't my wasn't my uh, my guy growing up. I was, it was always Spider Man and Hulk for me. And on the DC side, I, I read a little Batman. But uh, so I mean, every every now and then Iron Man would show up in a in a Spider Man or a Hulk adventure, and so I knew you know. Yeah. yeah, but uh, but no, he was not a big, not one of my guys I followed. But I, this was a great, great show. It was, it was uh, fun, and actually, there was what, what's amazing to me it was the depth that was there in the portrayal of Tony Stark. Robert Downey Jr. is just awesome. I'm I'm so glad he's gotten himself straightened out. It seems like. Um, yeah, I, that, what a talent to have him. wasted to waste it on drugs. He lost it basically a decade, um, and I'm um, so glad to see him back and, and doing well. Absolutely, good for him. Good for him. And we'll uh, we'll we'll well. That's a that's a good I think summary of Iron Man. So we'll we'll shelve the topic of uh, what what else we'd like to see in coming movies for uh, for another time. We 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 do we do want to come back to that though because I think there's probably some uh, some pretty fun movies coming out this summer. But not as fun as the movies that we've imagined that could be made. So we'll uh, we'll spend a little bit of time talking about that. All right. Well, I think that's going to do it uh, this time around. Unless uh, Stephen, any parting thoughts on our topic for the evening on the Speculus Manifesto or any other subject? I, again, I'm on board. Uh, I think we ought to uh, we ought to get that in writing uh, and and get it posted up at the Speculus so people can read it. Um, I want to get to the final. Uh, go ahead and introduce the uh, the final music tonight. Uh, the band is the Crash Moderns, and the song is "This Time." Okay, the song is "This Time." The band is the Crash Moderns. That's right. All right. Well, we'll look forward to listening to that, and um, I guess we'll uh, be putting the show notes together with links to the various 
topics that we talked about this evening. All right. All right. Well, thanks, Stephen, and thank you, Michael. That was fun. And And thanks to everybody in the chat room. uh, Thanks to everyone uh, in the chat room and all all those who are listening. Until uh, next time, we will look forward to talking to you again on the next Fast Forward Radio. Until then, live to see it. (laughs) 